Welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Nicol van Dijk. I'm a postgraduate researcher at the Aspital Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Hospital in Dawa, Qatar. And today I have the tremendous opportunity to speak with Dr. David Opar about the risk factors for hamstring strain injuries and the use of Nordic hamstring exercises in prevention and rehabilitation of these injuries. Dr. David Opar is one of the emerging voices in this field. David is currently a lecturer at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. He is also a member of the Queensland University of Technology Hamstring Injury Group, where he did most of his postgraduate work, and together with Dr. Anthony Shields, helped to develop the Nordic Hamstring Device, a simple yet potential revolutionary device that makes the popular Nordic exercises quantifiable. David is an invited speaker at many international conferences, as well as heading up ACU's arm of the Hamstring Injury Group. David, let's jump straight in. It seems that with Nordic hamstring exercises, you're either for it or against it. A recent tweet by Dr. Rod Whiteley summarizes many clinicians' opinions. He writes, uh, it sounds like an economist. It works in practice, but not in theory. So how do Nordic hamstring exercises work, and do we know why? Yeah, it's a, a really good question, Nicola, and really a hot topic in the field, I think, at the moment. Um, and not unlike Rod, to have a very, very good way with words on it. Uh, I suppose the things we have to consider with the Nordic hamstring exercise is it's both its strengths and then also its limitations. Certainly in the, the hamstring strain injury literature and the evidence base, it's the exercise with the greatest amount of support. We know from the, the Arneson study um, and then also the Peterson study from the guys in Copenhagen um, that the exercise works from a preventative perspective um, in their cohort of soccer players. Um, and in particular, the Peterson study had a potent effect on minimising the risk of re-injury as well. So the evidence is there to suggest that it works, um, but there are limitations with the exercise as well. So I can't suggest that it would be the only exercise that you implement in a preventative program. Um, obviously, it, it works at short muscle lengths, um, and some evidence we have from Matt Bourne suggests that it biases more the semi-tendinosis uh, and less the lateral hamstrings and the biceps femoris. So look, the evidence is there, it works, and the implementation of it is important along with being able to implement a number of other strategies as well. Strategies as well. So it's, it's certainly not the, the silver bullet, the magic bullet that will solve all problems, but certainly should be strongly considered from a raft of preventative measures for hamstring strain injuries. Thanks, David. Uh, that certainly sounds like uh, it has a lot of potential. Uh, you recently published um, a great study on the potential risk factor of decreased eccentric strength, which uh, is what the Nordic hamstring exercises targets. Have, you, have we improved uh, our ability to identify risk factors? And, and could you elaborate a little bit on this, the findings of your study? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a brief synopsis. Uh, of that study, which was published not long ago in Medside Sports and Exercise. Um, essentially, for the work of, as you mentioned in the intro, myself and Dr. Anthony Shield at the Queensland University of Technology, she developed what is essentially an instrumented Nordic hamstring device, and it benefits from being able to measure eccentric strength in the field uh, with a very, very quick turnaround time. And so the offshoot of that is that we get very high athlete throughput and so in the practical and clinical environment, that's particularly appealing. So we had a look at a big group of elite Australian rules footballers uh, and did a whole number of measures at the start of pre-season and also at the end of pre-season. Uh, we looked at their eccentric strength 
uh, during the Nordic hamstring exercise and then followed them prospectively, not only in the pre-season but also in the in-season period, uh, to have a look at what were some of the characteristics of those guys that went on to be injured and didn't. And ultimately it boiled down to, from the, the novelty perspective, uh, was that we found that the eccentrically weak athlete uh, was at significantly greater risk, above a two-fold increase in risk if we look at their strength at the start of pre-season and if we then, if they're still considered weak at the end of pre-season and they're looking at a four-fold increase in risk of future hamstring strain injury. So it seemed that eccentric weakness uh, was the thing that was most predictive out of that study and interestingly uh, it wasn't the imbalance between limbs. We looked at 10, 15 and 20% between limb imbalance or asymmetry in eccentric strength and at any of those cutoffs, there wasn't a, an indication that having between limb imbalance in that Nordic test increased your risk of future injury. I suppose the, the other really interesting work from our perspective, and, and kudos to Dr. Morgan Williams, who's another key and important member of our group from the University of South Wales, um, looked very closely at the interaction of risk factors. And so Morgan had a particular focus on not only looking at eccentric strength and a univariate approach, but also looking at how older and younger athletes and how athletes with and without a previous history might have or might have interacting risk factors. And by that I mean that if they have high or low levels of eccentric strength, could that mitigate the effects of what we've considered previously to be non-modifiable factors, chiefly being increasing age and then a history of previous injury? And the fascinating thing from our perspective was that, yes, your older athletes and your athletes with a history of prior hamstring strain injury were at risk, but actually if you looked at those athletes who had higher and higher levels of eccentric strength, they were actually able to mitigate the additional risk associated with being old or having an injury history. And so it really drove home the point that understanding in non-modifiable risk factors are great, but how do they interact with the modifiable factors and the factors that you can ultimately change? And I think that's certainly a, an area that we're pursuing, and I'm sure a number of other people are pursuing for the future in terms of risk factors for hamstring strain injury. David, do you think we can uh, translate that into prevention strategies for football teams? Uh, you highlight the interaction of risk factors, and I think that's a very valuable point you make. Uh, do you have any ideas on on how we can help, uh, um, especially in football, but in all sports, uh, prevent these injuries by by implementing something like the Nordic hamstring exercises more efficiently? Yeah, look, I think it's it's I suppose not just the Nordic hamstring exercise, but there's perhaps a, a philosophical approach that you might take towards prevention, and I certainly think that we can sometimes get caught up. Uh, in the rhetoric that there's a, a single definitive way that ultimately we've not found the best exercise necessarily for the prevention of hamstring injuries because they still occur and we've not found necessarily the best preventative strategy or we have found those but we're just not able to implement them well. So I think the, the key philosophies really coming off Carl Aspling's work and he's obviously looked at hamstring strain injury prevention and also rehabilitation is a philosophy of eccentric strength at long hamstring muscle length. I think that's probably one of the, the key pillars that you would look at in trying to implement a preventative strategy. Uh, but then there's also the um, sports-specific avenue or aspect of prevention as well. So 
I don't think we can understate the stimulus that high-speed running volume and high-speed running load has as a stimulus for both prevention and also rehabilitation. Um, and so I think both of those strategies need to coexist um, and depending perhaps on the periodization, the time of the season, and indeed, you know, the individual athlete history, um, all of those variables certainly need to be manipulated. The one thing I, I would um, consider, certainly with the sports-specific or high-speed running approaches, that that is obviously the activity which ultimately elicits injury. So close monitoring of the volume and the load of high-speed running is particularly important because it certainly is good to pour a lot of high-speed running work into athletes, but ultimately they're also going to be most vulnerable during that activity type as well. The eccentric strengthening approach, um, whilst not being sport-specific, ultimately allows us to drive a lot of muscular adaptations um, that then perhaps protect us better when we get out towards high-speed running. Uh, our BJSM podcast listeners have heard some great talks on hamstring injuries in recent months, uh, especially from Dr. Jan Ekstrand regarding uh, epidemiology and highlighting the fact that hamstring strain injuries are still the most common specific injury in football and the need for greater sports-specific training. You touch on that uh, uh, in your in your answer. Um, could you could you maybe elucidate that a little more uh, on your opinion regarding functional sports-specific rehab and just focused muscle strengthening. Yeah. Uh, look, as I said before, I think the the avenue of both philosophies, if you will, is really important. And I don't think we need to necessarily spend much time arguing about which one is more favourable than the other. I think really the attention should focus on what are the strengths and limitations of each of those approaches, and then how can you overlap the strengths to try and minimise or offset the limitations of both. Um, so as I said, certainly high-speed running is you know, critically important and ultimately progressing your athlete back to sports-specific function um, is where they need to be to be able to compete and participate. But as I said before, that also ramps up the risk that the athlete has for re-injury, so really close monitoring and, and periodization of that phase of prevention or rehab is really important. Certainly from a strength perspective, it really gives us a direct avenue to be able to augment or increase eccentric hamstring strength. And there's certainly good direct evidence to suggest that that will minimise your risk of re-injury. But I think there's also a, a far greater amount of circumstantial evidence that suggests that being stronger eccentrically uh, is going to hold you in good stead. It might not only be uh, the strength adaptation that we get from eccentric exercise um, or eccentric strengthening exercise, but also some of the changes that might have on on muscle architecture. So I, I sort of look at the strengthening or isolated strengthening versus sport-specific functional training argument a little bit like the argument between does hamstring injury occur during stance or during the swing phase. And to some extent, I think that is a little bit of a red herring um, because we ultimately want to know the mechanism of injury to help try to guide some of our preventative strategies. And we've seen some really good preventative strategies. Um, so I think we're sort of taking our eyes off what is the important factor here and not trying to argue in favour of one or the other, but taking the strengths of, of both approaches and trying to minimise their limitations as well. 
David, just quickly, can you tell us a little more about the device? Uh, is it a clinically uh, friendly tool and how exactly do you measure eccentric strength? Yeah, so, I mean, if you can imagine the Nordic hamstring exercise is typically performed as a partner-assisted exercise. Uh, and I'm assuming that most of those listening will uh, at least have some idea about the Nordic hamstring exercise. And if not, I'm sure you can chase up some details. Um, but ultimately, it's a partner-assisted bodyweight exercise uh, where the individual will try and resist the effects of gravity acting on their upper body weight uh, by a forceful contraction of the knee flexors whilst they're lengthening. Um, and, and again, big kudos for Dr. Anthony Shield here, who's been uh, integral uh, to the development of the device and the invention of the device. Um, really, his idea to take the partner-assisted element out of it uh, and then replace that with individual braces for both the left and the right leg, and underneath those ankle braces, which ultimately secure the lower leg in place, uh, just a couple of force transducers, strain gauges, load cells, and they probably go by a number of different names. Um, so when the individual starts to perform the Nordic hamstring exercise, they pull up forcefully against the ankle brace, um, and then that force is transmitted through the brace into the load cells, and then those load cells... Uh, ultimately then just transmit to a PC, can be wired or wireless, um, and then that gives us real-time data on left and right limb forces. Um, and so certainly it's used, uh, at least in the prototype stage at the moment, and it's progressing to something that's more and more likely likely to be a commercial product. Um, it's used uh, by a number of elite AFL clubs over the last uh, year and a half to two years, um, and now there's also a couple of devices um, in Europe as well. And, and Dr. Morgan Williams at University of South Wales uh, will soon have a, a prototype uh, in his lab there as well. And on top of that, it's been used uh, within sports med clinics, uh, particularly uh, Queensland Sports Medicine Centre uh, and, and the guys out there um, for their clinical populations as well. Um, and, and I think it just adds a really nice bit of clinical information that's really easy to, to measure uh, and to record where previously perhaps the other old, or the only other alternative was either isokinetic dynamometry, which is expensive, uh, or handheld dynamometry, which certainly can be influenced by the practitioner. So I think it's got scope to work in a number of different environments, and we're certainly uh, working with a number of really, really good people in those fields. It certainly does. Uh, is there anything um, else you would like to add uh, regarding the risk factors for hamstring strain injuries? Look, we've got a, a couple of studies going on at the moment that I think are going to have some really, really interesting findings in, and implications, not only from a, a research perspective, but also from a clinical perspective as well. And so a PhD student of mine here at um, Australian Catholic University, Ryan Timmons, is doing a lot of work on biceps femoris architecture. Um, and he's recently had the first of his PhD studies published again in Medsize Sports and Exercise. Um, but Ryan's looking at fascicle length, muscle thickness and penation angle of biceps femoris longhead and whether deficits or between limb differences in biceps femoris architecture might actually lead to an increased risk of injury. So he's completed um, his data collection for that in the elite Australian soccer competition, the A-League. Um, so he's imaged uh, in excess of 160 of those A-League guys. Um, they've just finished pre-season and they're now into the in-season period. 
So we've been able to have a look at some preliminary data from the pre-season period where, fortunately for us and unfortunately for the clubs, uh, there was 13 hamstring strain injuries across the group. Uh, and, and there certainly seems to be something of, of real interest there in terms of limbs and athletes who have shorter biceps femoris fascicle lengths in one leg um, compared to the other. So I think that's an area that's certainly going to be of interest and, and watch out for more work from Ryan in the future. Um, I think the other area that's of, of real interest for us as well, um, and, and certainly a lot of people around the globe at the minute too, is uh, the preferential uh, activation of biceps femoris long head in um, common preventative and rehabilitation exercises for hamstring strain injury. So Matt Bourne, who's doing his PhD up at the Queensland University of Technology uh, under Dr Anthony Shield up there, uh, has got funding for a, a relatively large functional MRI study. We'll actually be able to look at uh, functional MR with a number of different common exercises to see whether there is an exercise uh, that does preferentially target biceps femoris long head. And it's going to be of, of great benefit to have a large bank of scans or money for scans, um, but then also scans across the same individual done in the same study um, to try and work out whether there is you know, the golden exercise that targets biceps femoris long head. I don't think we necessarily get to that point, but perhaps it will just give us a little bit more guidance about exercise selection moving forward, not only for prevention, but also for rehabilitation. That's great. Thanks, David. Uh, so if we, uh, if we put it all together, what is the take-home message for the clinician when treating hamstring strain injuries? Look, I think mostly to have an open mind and to have some degree of flexibility uh, in your perspective. Uh, as I said, there's probably you know, two really common areas in hamstring strain injury where people are very gung-ho to back one approach or one opinion and not the other, but I'd certainly make the argument that nobody's found the secret recipe. Uh, no one's found uh, the one strategy that's going to work or the one exercise that's going to work. So really be mindful to what can work and what are the, the benefits or strengths of that, but then also be aware that any approach is probably going to have some limitations as well. I mean, from our work going forward, it, you know, eccentric strengths, um, whether it's in the Nordic or whether it's eccentric strength of longer uh, muscle tendon unit lengths, I think is a, a really key priority. Um, and then your high-speed running work is imperative, A, for performance, but then also as a stimulus for prevention and rehabilitation. Um, so keep an open mind, be open to new ideas and understand why things could and should work and why perhaps they don't and try and integrate all of that together as best you can. Thank you, David, for sharing your insight and expertise with us today on this BJSM podcast.